Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Saddle hunters, our brothers over at Tethered, continue to kill the game by releasing innovative products. They just recently put out the Eberhardt Series Saddle. They also put out the Menace Saddle, which is for our, our husky brothers and sisters that are into saddle hunting that does but that saddle will do just maybe a little bit better job of cupping your quote-unquote assets. But the thing that I'm most excited about is their recent release of the Tethered One Climbing Stick. Um, this thing is crazy light, crazy strong, and crazy quiet. I'm just going to cut to the chase here and give you some specs. Each stick weighs in at less than one pound. That includes your Dynalite rope attachment. Uh, a three-pack of these will weigh in at 2.7 pounds, which is ridiculously light. It's a 17-inch step-to-step uh, single stick, uh, single stick height, and there's an eight and a half-inch uh, step footbed, which gives you plenty of room for for those of us folks with 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 bigger feet. It's all made with aerospace grade titanium and aluminum for construction. So if you'd like to learn more about Tether's innovative products, head over to tetherednation.com and check them out. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 197. Today I'm joined by my good buddy, Brian Broderick, from Day 6 Gear, and we're talking all about hunting pressured whitetails and getting in the comfort zone. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. If you are open, I hope that you are getting some uh, some well-needed timber time to, uh, to to chase some whitetails with a bow. I had a chance to get out this past weekend. I've been open for a little over a week, um, headed into the second week. This will be the second week that, that my little area of Pennsylvania has been open. And uh, hunted pretty much all day Saturday. Um, you know, did a morning hunt. I know that typically... You know, October morning sometimes can or may or may not be fruitful, and I'm kind of really pressuring this one particular area where I where I knew or I thought that there was uh, a really good deer that I that I'd bumped um, after I'd found him glass and found where he was bedded, and uh, checked the camera and hunted that that particular spot. And there is a decent deer in there um, that I have that I have on camera, um, but 
the the one that I'm really kind of after that I that I saw glass in and that I found bedded there. It seems as though he's already kind of transition uh, transitioned off. Um, there's two cameras on this particular piece and different sections of the property, and I assumed I'd pick him up on one of the two if he was still in the area, and um, he's not come through. So. Um, which is why I kind of been pressuring that particular area kind of hard. Um, it's where I've been doing majority of my hunting this past week, whether it was a morning or whether it was an evening, um, considering that he was probably going to transition at some point and I was going to lose him. So I was trying to make hay while the sun was shining, so to speak. Uh, but the good news is there's still a, de- uh, a good deer in there. So I'll probably back out of there and give it a little bit of a rest. There's a couple other places, you know, this time of year, I'm really kind of, you know, I have a ton of places that I've hung cameras across a bunch of different public pieces this year. And so really the beginning part of my season here is I kind of had a plan for early, um, which, you know, I tried to execute and, um, that deer just wasn't there. Um, and so then, you know, what it kind of starts to become is kind of hunting specific places, always with the right wind, but using those opportunities then to kind of check the cameras that are in those, in those areas to kind of understand what was going on. Now I've talked in the past that I like to hunt historical, you know, camera data for, 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 for a large part or by and large. And there's one or two pieces um, that I'm doing that this year that I have a little bit of information from running cameras on them for the past uh, couple years. And so I'm kind of waiting until I, you know, from what my cam- uh, cameras have told me in the past that the time it is, is right for those particular pieces. But there's a bunch this year that are brand new to me. Um, and so I'm kind of having to hit those and hunt those, you know, of course, when the wind is right, go in and check trail cameras and see what's going on. If there's, you know, deer in the area. Um, and then confirm, you know, some of this stuff is even just learning how they're moving on some of these pieces. And, and I think Brian and I talk a little bit about that in this podcast, cause I had done a right. I think it was right before we recorded this, I had done a, an evening hunt, um, from the ground slipped in after work. Um, you know, just really quick, uh, to in, in a general area where I had seen that, uh, big deer and had, had jumped him, um, and ended up having a couple deer come in, uh, to about 20 yards, just couldn't get a shot. Um, does going to try to fill the freezer. And, um, but what I had learned was they're using this particular kind of bedding area and how they're moving was different than what I had thought. Um, and so, you know, that was a, a learning experience for me. It was also finding better access, uh, into this particular piece, which I was able, which I was able to do. And so now I think I can hunt this particular area of this piece a little bit more effectively because I think my access is a little bit better. Um, and I'm starting to better understand how they're kind of, how they're kind of moving. The one thing that's been instrumental for me in a couple of these pieces to understand how they're, how they're moving is, uh, running my cameras on video mode. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I try to do as much as I can. If it's in, if it's in an area that I'm not going to get a ton of pictures and I'm not worried about blowing out my batteries, um, or filling up the card, I'll run it on video mode, you know, particularly if there's a primary scraper, you know, some type of, uh, some type of sign that they're going to be hitting, um, cause I want to see what direction they're coming from and, and at, at what times, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll have a deer that's facing the camera, but maybe the camera didn't trigger quickly enough and they had turned toward it whenever they were really actually walking the opposite way. So I want to see how they're coming and how they're going. Cause I want to see what way their heads are pointing whenever they're coming to the camera. And I want to see their asses, you know, at some point in what direction they're walking away from the camera. Um, that helps me kind of understand, especially on these new pieces, you know, how they're going to use some of this terrain and how they're going to kind of move through some of these bedding areas and, and, and stuff like that. So that's what I was able to pick up this past, uh, this past week. Cause I pulled another camera on a hunt on Saturday. Um, and it was a place that I had hunted last year, uh, later in the year and got a little bit of Intel about, and I had assumed, um, on this particular parcel, you know, there was going to be some pressure in certain areas and I figured it would push deer into a particular, um, a particular spot. 
And I just wasn't 100% sure on how they were moving and how they were using the, the, the terrain. I could find a few trails here and there, but they weren't really, really descript. Um, and so I had that, that camera on video mode and got some really good intel in terms of how they're, how they're getting through this particular area. So um, that was helpful, and uh, it'll help me kind of put together some hunts as we get uh, further and further into the season. But with that, I'm not going to delay here a whole lot. going to kind of get jumped into the podcast. One thing to mention really quickly is Skull Brew Coffee Company is running a promotion uh, for the opener. Um, all you have to do is go to skullbrewcoffee.com and use the promo code OPENER20, and it will save you some cash on some killer coffee. If you don't know much about Skull Brew Coffee Company, it's a, it's a business that my wife and I own, and we donate 10% of our profits uh, back to nonprofit conservation organizations. It's just a way for us to give back. So if you're interested in looking for some killer single-origin uh, craft-roasted coffee, then check out skullbrewcoffee.com and go ahead and use that promotional code. And with that, we're going to go ahead and get jumped into today's podcast. Brian from Day 6 is one of my favorite people to have on. He's just a good dude, full of great information. And one of the things I appreciate most about him is he's just a straight um, straight shooter. And a lot of what we talk about today is, you know, hunting pressured whitetails, a little bit about, you know, flooding because he lives in the in the south. He's down there in Alabama and um, folks down there have, you know, a lot of flooding issues right now, of course. And so I was just curious as the how deer react whenever they hit these, you know, really nasty kind of weather, weather episodes and what they do, like when they're displaced and, and, um, and stuff like that. And then the cool thing is at the very end, and this actually really helped me was he has a specific way he likes to set up his bow for, for whitetails. And when I say set up, I'm not talking necessarily tuning and broadheads and stuff like that. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the basis, the, you know, you need to have a tuned bow. Um, but what he really talks about is removing, um, moving parts, um, and simplifying your setup. So you start to remove the thinking process from taking your shot when the, when the moment, moment of truth comes. And, uh, it's actually helped me recently because I, I'd kind of been doing this to a degree, but didn't really have a method for how I was doing it. And the way he broke it down clearly gave me a method uh, for how to do it. And so I actually went and re kind of dialed in my bow, uh, right after this podcast. And it is making, it's making a difference in my world. It'll probably, you know, potentially make a difference for you guys too. So, um, be sure to listen through. That's probably toward like the three quarter uh, of the way mark of the of the podcast. So, with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into the podcast. As always, uh, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And I have my buddy on. You will recognize his uh, his the dulcet tones coming from this gentleman. This is, I think, the fourth podcast we've done together uh, over the past. I know we've known each other for about two years. I'm talking to my buddy, Mr. Brian Broderick of Day Six Specialized Gear. What's going on, Brian? What's happening? Oh, you know, just got out of the woods, man. I've I, uh, I ran out of the out of out of the house today, working from home still, of course. You know, so I ran out of the house as soon as I possibly could and ran to the timber and uh, did a quick hunt from the ground. I, it's since the last time you and I talked, we talked a little bit about ground hunting and stuff like that, and I've had. Two hunts mm-hmm. this year so far, and both of them have been from the ground. And today I was at, uh, had a couple deer come in at, to 25 yards, and that was, which was, which well, was cool. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was stoked, man. I was, truth be told, you know, we can get into this when we start talking some whitetails, you know, more specifically what you have going on and stuff. But, you know, there's an area of where yeah. I kind of found this, you know, a pretty decent deer, um, really by any state standards. Um, and, uh, I found where he was bedded and stuff like that. And I kind of have a sense of where he's living, but this whole piece is brand new to me public. And, uh, and so I'm really trying to figure out what my best way to get in to try to hunt him. And so 
I went opening morning and had a decent sit, hunted from the ground because the canopy is so low in there. You just can't really get into a tree. You're going to really have limited shooting. Um, and then sure. today was really, you know, I jumped out of work and, you know, because it's, I'm losing light and I think I got to like the spot that I wanted to hunt just a little after five and, you know, you're pretty much tapped out if you have canopy, probably like around seven. So I had like maybe two hours and, uh, I was really trying to find yeah. a, a better access route is really what I was trying to find. Cause I just, my access was good, but way too long, um, from the previous spot. I, I knew there had to be a better way. And so that was my mission today. Forgot my boots, so I ended up having to wear my van slip-ons to hunt because that's what I wore <laughs> in the truck to go hunt. And so I wore basically skateboarding. Oh yeah, I wore skateboarding shoes to walk through a swamp, and uh, which uh, it, it worked out. It worked out fine, but I had a couple of deer come into twenty-five yards. I was going to try to kill a doe tonight if I had the chance, and then uh, the fawn ended up picking me picking me off because they ended up coming from an area that I didn't didn't expect them to come from. But you know, you live and you learn, man. The ground setup is just something I'm trying to get used to, and. It's just different, man. Like it's different than picking out a tree. It's like I'm having to look for significant back cover. I'm trying to look where the shadows are at and just all those types of things and find the right setup. But I'll get there. Man, that sounds awful complicated to me. Other than you being in your Portland moccasins walking through the swamp, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, my Portland moccasins. That's that's yeah. great, man. They they came without riots though. They came without riots. So oh yeah oh I got gotcha. you yeah I got gotcha. you yeah so those cost twice as much yeah. um, but exactly. uh, um I I'll tell you man the 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 last you know hour and a half two hours of of the day that's been that little last you know ditch and dive you know ditch work and dive into a tree deal that's been my bread and butter mm-hmm. you know since I could drive right. uh thirty something years ago longer than I can remember but. Uh, you know, growing up in construction, man, I, you know, I was, I was getting off at, getting off work at, you know, um, three 30. Right. And, you know, depending on whose job I was on, sometimes it was a little earlier if I could make a deal, but, uh, hell man, I mean, I would, I would ditch and, you know, be an hour from somewhere I hunted and at four 30, I'm walking in five o'clock, I'm in a stand and it. 6.30 or 7, you know, you're to lose, you know, loosen an arrow. I mean, it's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. And, yeah. you know, especially hunting pressure deer, hell, man, they're not going to move before, you know, right before dark anyway. That's just it, man, because I've spent a lot of time, like, giving up on evening hunts, you know, during, um, and not, not holistically, but just when I'm, during the week when I'm working, because I was, I was always like, man, if I get out, I'm only going to have, like, maybe you know, by the time I got to where I was setting up, I had maybe an hour and a half to hunt, you know, and a lot of times in the past, it's like, I probably wouldn't went out and have done it just because I'm like, Oh, it's only going to be an hour and a half. But like, like you said, man, it's like, sometimes I think, I think I'm more willing to do it whenever I feel like I know I have a deer in the area and it's, it's just, and it's more of like a cat mouse game. It's going to be, am I there when he's going to be there type of thing? You know what I mean? Where it's like, I just need to like have good access and I just need to be there. I just need to kind of continue to tighten the, the, the noose on him, so to speak. Cause I know he's in the area. I just need yep. to figure out what my best access is. And I need to figure out, can I get a visual of him somewhere? And aside from that, even like I learned a couple things tonight. One was access. And two was the deer were moving out of bedding way different than I thought they were at least those couple deer. Yeah. And then I ended up running into a couple deer on, on my way out that were kind of moving in a similar way. And so 
the route that they're using through that bedding is a lot different than I had anticipated. So it was like yeah. that went into the memory bank too, that like the way I was setting up previously might not be the best bet because they're moving, you know, instead of moving North and South, how I thought they were through the bedding, they're actually moving East and West, which is why those deer that came well, in, came in directly toward me, like head on to me. They were walking right at me as opposed to walking across me, how I thought they would. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the, some of the lessons that I've pulled, um, from, from doing this, you know, late hunting and just hunting in general is that think about how many times that you've kind of gotten to stand early. You're like, Oh, this is great. Everything's going to settle down and then it's going to be right. And you're sitting there and everything's perfect. And then an hour before dark, 30 minutes before dark, the damn wind changes mm-hmm. because the wind drops and then the thermals start pulling in a different direction. Yep. Happens all the time especially early season when it's warm yeah and you're getting a thermal pull and you're basically getting a false wind and then what happens is is that as you know the sun dips behind the trees and and um it starts to cool down you know the 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 thermals start pushing the wind the way it was actually forecasted right and and that is that is a hard lesson that i I really had a hard time learning that lesson. I, I never put it all together. And um, so going in too early sometimes is, is, is actually the kiss of death. And in, in my mind, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just kind of what I've learned. And man, I like going in late to hunt afternoon, especially when you're hunting close to their bedding. Yeah. Um, because you making noise is not even on the same radar in my mind as them catching a whiff of you. Right. And, um, I mean, stuff makes noise all the time. Well, yeah. You know, they hear stuff all the time. Yeah. And so, but if they smell you, it's over. And then the other thing that I learned, especially when you're hunting close to bedding areas, is that you're thinking, okay, I've got this map in my head to where, okay, they're bedding here. They're going to get up. They're going to go head out towards this field or this food source or whatever. And it's going to be this, like, you know, guy going to work, punching the clock type thing. And that's not at all how it works a lot. You know, a lot of times it is these deer will get up right at dark and they're going to move to another area within that bedding zone and just dick around for a while. Mm-hmm. But they're getting up and stretching their legs and they're going to go, hey, I'm going to go over here and hit this little, you know, briar patch bit, yep. mess around. And then when it's pitch black dark, then I'll make my beeline. And I've noticed that those deer we'll spend a lot of time milling and feeding, you know, in these, these bedding areas, because a lot of them are not a lot of canopy and the sun can get in and it's just brushy stuff. And yeah. like what you're talking about, if you can't get in a tree, yeah, and it's, you know, getting good sunlight to the ground and they're in there picking on all that browse, you know, just kind of moving around a little bit until it gets, you know, completely. Yeah. I think that you think they're going to do it. 530 right know? right yeah exactly and when that and that was the thing too it's like i said this 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 piece is completely brand new to me the first year i've hunted it you know i scouted it off season did you know hung a camera two cameras in there and then ended up finding this one deer and then found him you know in a in a bean field nearby and i just had a hunch that he might be bedded over near the private public line and in that and then i did a quick scout mission i ended up bumping him out of his bed and found him and so I kind of knew the general, you know, the general area that he might be spending some time. Now I know deer are going to start to, you know, transition, you know, just, I, I was hoping, you know, that I could 
hold him there at least for maybe two weeks, you know, until, you know, October hit, you know, yep. so to speak. That way I'd maybe get an opportunity before he, you know, shifted to his fall area. And so I did a drive by sure. the bean field this evening after I, after I hunted just to see if there were any deer in the field and there weren't, which I didn't expect there to be because there are a pile of acorns in there right now. And so what the other thing that I kind of learned is like, okay, playing that travel route right now with him to the bean field, these does that I've, you know, these couple deer that I saw tonight kind of also told me like they weren't headed in the direction of the bean field. They were actually headed to, to this transition area in between two bedding areas and we're coming to hit that. They're just going in melon. Yeah, they were going to hit that oak tree right where I was standing. Like they were making a beeline right toward that because that's where all the in that general area that was like the one place that yeah. I found that was dropping a ton of white oaks or a white oak was dropping a ton of acorns and they were headed right there, and I'm, I and there was a ton of caps already there and so I guarantee you they were going to stop there and munch, um, you know, until they decided to head off if they did make it to that primary food source later, you know, under dark or whatever. But they're already starting to spend a lot more time in the timber versus headed to primary food sources already, even if, cause this bean field's yeah. still green. So it hasn't turned yet, but it, I'm sure it's on the verge of turning. Cause there are plenty around that have turned around here already. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm I feel like I probably need to, you know, I'm hunting him kind of aggressive anyway. I was the on opening day. I was set up maybe 60, 70 yards outside of his bed or where I found him bedded. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, I think that's just going to have to be my game plan here for this next week. And then, um, if I don't see him, if I, if I don't see hide nor tail of him here in like the next week, I'm probably going to shift to like a different, a different property where I know I have some other, other really good bedding, um, that I have some daylight pictures of bucks and, and, and stuff on that I might have an opportunity at. So I got a couple places to hop around, man. So we'll, uh, we'll see what, what shakes out, but you've already been out West kind of getting after it kind of hard, man, you know, doing the, 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 the Western elk hunt, New Mexico, right? Is that where you were at? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I would. I wouldn't use the term "getting after it" really hard. Um, and I will get into that. But one of the things I, I kind of wanted to maybe wrap up. Yeah. What we were just talking about there was, was something that that I've kind of adage that I've I've kind of started to live by is that when it comes to killing big deer um, in pressured areas, um, whether it's public or private, one of the things that I've kind of just kind of lived by is is that the the more pressured the property is and the, you know, the, the harder it is to kill that deer. You, you, if, if you don't kill him with leaves still sticking on his fur, you're probably not going to kill him. Right. And yeah. what I mean by that is, is that, you know, you, you better kill him within a few minutes of him standing up for the first time that afternoon. Yeah. Um, and that has, that has been, you know, the, the, a really, that's been a great lesson to learn and it's been a great strategy to basically just push in, push in, push in, push in and just get closer, 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 you know, and get basically right up in the middle of where they're bedding as long as wind will allow. Mm -hmm. Um, and so your approach, as long as your approach is what's, you know, what you're leaving in your, in your back trail, as long as that's not where deer are and you can push yourself up into a, a point in that bedding zone to where when that deer gets up and makes, you know, minor moves, you're on him. Mm-hmm. That's the way I've killed him. Yeah. Um, and, and that's translated a lot into river bottom bucks, um, that basically lay right along these river, river beds. Um, and they'll lay right on these banks and things like that. And these little thickets, cause it's super thick right along most of these river banks because of so much moisture. And they'll lay in there and they just, you know, they're just not going to move until it's just right at dark. And then when they do get up, 
they're going to get up and just mill around the woody browse, you know, that's just right along the riverbank and, you know, just kind of peck around a little bit. And then once it's dark, you know, they'll make their march, uh, if you will. But, you know, pushing up into those things to where you feel like, man, I'm going to screw this up. That's really the only way I've been able to, to kill pressure deer and really big deer um, that are just not, you know, willing to move in the daylight um, early season. And it, it, it's a different game. You know, if you have your own property or you're not, you're hunting a big piece of property that's not pressured, you have the luxury of waiting until the rut, right. you know? Um, yeah. But if you don't, you know, that deer is going to get relocated by yeah. someone or something, uh, or he's going to get, you know, whatever, all kinds of things can happen. So, you know, in my mind, for what you're doing, you've got to push it. Yeah. I mean, you've got to just get in there and find a spot that you can see through, you know, uh, see through a zone, you know, in that thick area where they're bedding and slowly work your way up there to it if you're going to ground hunt. Yeah. Make sure the wind's right, get in there and just basically get in there late, take a knee and just, you know, hope that they're going to get up and push through that little crack you've got to shoot through. Yeah. And um, the interesting, that's how I've killed them, man. Yeah, man. The interesting part, and I, you're a hundred percent right, man. Like I, I, I totally agree with you. You know, it's, it, it, there's a couple things that you said I want to follow up on there. And, and, and one is the whole idea of him relocating, you know, that's why it's like, for me, one of the things that I've just, you know, learned over time and I'm trying to execute this year is look, he's going to relocate for a multitude of reasons, whether it's because he transitions transitions to his fall range, you know, here during early season, if like he could be gone, right. He could get bumped multiple times. You know, I'm, I'm not the only guy hunting this piece. So, you know, who, who knows how many human encounters he's had and you know, what that, what that does to him, you know, whether it moves him off completely or, you know, whether it's a combination of him transitioning to his fall range and being bumped multiple times, whatever the, whatever the case is. So, I'm always kind of of the mind in early season, especially when, you know, for me and PA, my opener is mid September in the special regulations unit. Rest of the state comes in, you know, end of September, beginning of October. And so for me, it's like, I always look at it and say, look, the bucks I bumped the last two weeks of September probably aren't going to be the bucks that are in those same bedding areas come October. You know what I mean? After they transition and kind of shake around. So I almost look at it as like a get out of jail free card where it's like, I can go balls to the wall be super aggressive, try to get in on them. I either kill them or I, or I bump them, you know, and they bust me and then they're gone. But then it's no factor because there's going to be new deer. that are going to take their place. Come, come October anyway, most likely. Right. That's right. And so that, and, and, and and I've, and I've killed bucks that I never knew were there. Well, you know what? Let me rephrase that. I've killed bucks in areas that they weren't there. You know, I, I had gone in and, and, probably pressured you know the deer i was trying to kill too hard and ended up going you know going in thinking that that deer's still there and then killing another big deer that i'd never seen that had just slid into a really cool spot he found he's like damn this is this is tight here i'm gonna <laughs> right. hang out or you know because they're smelling deer and all that stuff in there and, yep. you know but i mean that's what's happening is is you're getting into these spots that are comfort zones for deer and, and you're picking up a new customer you know and, yeah. and man I hear what you're saying with the transition zones and the, the technical jargon and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, these things are looking for cover and protection when mm-hmm. it's, when it's daylight and they're looking for food when it's dark. Right. And in November, they're looking for what you and I are looking for every day. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So, um, so 
you know, when you're hunting those deer outside of November, at, at the end of the day, you're really hunting one of two things, that comfort zone or, you know, that security zone or the food. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, the food is going to be the younger animals and the, and the comfort zone, security zone, they're going to be the deer you're actually after. So, yeah. you know, they're constantly going to be transitioning in and out of these, these thick places that they're, they feel safe. And I'm a firm believer in just getting amongst them, yeah. you know, just getting right up in the damn middle of them. And, um, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many bucks I've killed along the river, the thick river beds where we hunt a lot that, um, you know, I've gone in and pushed, you know, a couple of does or a young deer out or something like that. And like, shit, you know, and the deer right. goes bouncing out of there and you're thinking, crap, I have blown this. And literally within minutes, you know, that buck is up and looking to see what was going on. Right. It, 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 it's, it's not going down the way you think it is. It's not somebody sounding the alarm and everybody bought, everybody bugs out. It's yeah. not the way it works. And big deer are not going to just get up and flee, you know, if they don't know what it is, they yeah. got to get, you know, they've got to get you in their nose or in their eyes or their ears. Um, before they're going to make a decision to leave what they know is safe. Right. So, yeah. I mean, good grief, man. How many times did you see does just dicking around all the times? I've seen them blow to run other deer off an of acorn tree. <laughs> nice. You know, I mean, just big old nags. Yep. You know, just, just, you know, blowing like hell and freaking everybody out. And it's almost like you can see them giggle when everybody runs away and then they just bury their head back down and start munching. So, you know, these big deer hear that all the time, and I would say push it to the limit, get right on top of them, get amongst them. I mean, if you're doing it right, man, half the time, if, if you're in the open stuff like, you know, the low, no canopy, kind of more open brushy stuff, there's times where they're going to get up, mm-hmm. and, and you can shoot them before they flee. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you screw up and push too hard, but, right. you know, you're not going to kill them sitting back on the edge waiting for them to come to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, you know, that it's, um, I just don't have enough patience for it either. You know, I, I prefer to kind of get up, yeah. in it, get up in it and, and mix it up a little bit. And, um, if I'm too aggressive, then, you know, what I always kind of look at is like, I end up learning something from it, you know, and, and I put that in my bag of tricks for the, for the next time. But going back to like the whole noise thing that you were talking about, like, I actually was thinking of that today while I was standing there and I had those couple deer come in and, because there were so many squirrels just dropping shit from trees and stuff like that. There was just constant sound to where I was like a twig snapping as you're kind of going through. Like, I think a lot, I mean, you want to be quiet as you possibly can. You don't want to go brust, you know, busting through brush and stuff like that and making a a ton of noise. But there's just like, to me, there's almost an acceptable amount of like, I would term it like forest noise that you can create as a person that is going to be tolerable. You know, if that, if that Absolutely. makes, if that makes sense, because I've also seen, I've also been setting up in a tree, just scraping boots along bark in the past and had, you know, the one year I had one of the, one of the shooters that I was targeting, he walked into like 25 yards while I was getting in my tree because I'm pretty sure he thought he heard someone scraping a tree and he was just coming in to check it well, out I, to see what was going on. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, I, I hunt out of a lone wolf climber, um, that, the not the, you know, talking about the original yeah. lone wolf climber people. Yeah. I hunt out of one of those probably more than anything. 
And, and I do it because they're so quiet and, you know, they, I just, I love everything about that, that whole system there. And I, I know it's not in vogue, you know, to, to not be hunting out of a diaper and a, you know, a, um, <laughs> a, you know, a, a Frisbee strapped to the tree, but I like, uh, a climbing tree stand. Um, I like the, the, the versatility of it. Um, I can use that climber either to climb with, or I can, you know, climb up and uh, use it as a, as a lock on. So I love the versatility of it. I, I love, you know, I just like everything about it. And I would much rather go up a tree, you know, with that lone wolf climber with that rubber belt mm-hmm. and, um, and go up like that, than hang, you know, sticks in a stand mm-hmm. because I'm going to make more noise and run more of a risk of banging metal or whatever you know, running sticks in a stand than I will with that climber and I can get up so much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I like the versatility of it, but uh, you know, that's a long winded version of, of me getting to the point of, I cannot tell you how many bucks I've had charged in on me, hair up, ears back as I'm climbing, thinking that I'm a deer rubbing a tree. Right. I can't tell you how many bucks I've had charged in ears back, hair up, uh, when I'm sawing a limb, mm-hmm. you know, thinking that's a buck rubbing a tree. So what, I guess my philosophy on noise is, um, that there's an acceptable level of, of noise. It's, it's just kind of the cadence of that noise, how you're walking yeah. in, walking out, as long as there's not a rhythm and cadence to it, that is pretty noticeable to a deer. It's, it's pretty acceptable to me, what's not acceptable that stands out louder than anything is the attempt at silence. Yes. You know, that, 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 that single pop and they look and they're like, they're listening like, okay, well that was nothing. And then you hear something else, then you hear something else, but it's all these little different things. And it's a person trying to tiptoe in mm-hmm. to me, that stands out to a, to a animal, not just deer, uh, as abnormal, you know, is that attempt at silence instead of just, moving through you know right yeah as soon as you said that it's like i was thinking of just again you know squirrels obviously are you know running rampant this time of year making tons of noise and like if you listen to the way they make sound it's like you know it's there's not like a there's not a specific cadence to it it's very abstract right no it's like there's like there's a scurry and then there's like some scraping of bark and then they knock a nut out of a tree and then there's a thud right and it's just like then there's leaves rustling and it's just like, and so it's like, if you think about it when you're walking through the woods, and that's the one thing I was thinking of today, you know, the only, the, the, the positive of forgetting my boots and, and using my Portland moccasins as, as you refer to them, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, was that those things were ridiculously quiet and the noise that I was making was just like, I was paying attention to it as I was going and I was like, man, I was like, I'm just really making like normal like woods noise. Like it's not overly loud. It's not too soft. That's not like there's a cadence to it or anything like that. It just sounds like something that's moving through. That's nondescript. You know what I mean? And it doesn't well, sound like there's a ton I of do. weight behind it. There doesn't sound like there's, it was just really interesting because I, as I got in and got set up, I was like, man, I was like, you know, if I could find a pair, now I understand why, you know, you know, native Americans were able to be so stealthy wearing moccasins, you know what I mean? Cause it's just well, like, and that, that is a, yeah, well, it's an incredible testament to, you know, the ingenuity of, uh, and the and the the genius of just 
having something out of necessity mm-hmm. versus having something out of comfort. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you think about those, those moccasins and that style is, is something that's born from necessity. And what we're wearing into the stand and into our hunts is something that's born for our need, you know, for comfort. Mm-hmm. And they're two different things, you know. And so um, I, I, I can't tell you how many uh, bucks I killed when I was in high school um, uh, in a pair of blue jeans and a pair of, uh, what were those boat shoes? Were they Sebago's? Oh, man, I don't even... I'm asking, I was asking my wife. I can't think. I mean, I always called them penny. Yeah, Sperry's. Yeah. 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 So topsiders, whatever you want to call them. So, but I mean, that's what we wore to school. And Mm -hmm. so I was always ditching out, you know, after third period and flying to the, you know, some, to a piece of property to get in a stand to shoot any deer back then um, with my bow. I didn't really care. And, but that's what I hunted in was, you know, my, my, my Sperry topsiders and my blue jeans and my, you know, plaid shirt that I went to school in. And so, I mean, <laughs> who cares? Yeah. You know, it was, it, it was effective. And so, you know, you think about going in now with these giant, you know, rubber boots and the big soles and you have no, you know, no feeling or anything like that. You're just, you're just trudging in there. Mm-hmm. You were probably more effective today in your little, you know, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure they're checkerboard bands, but they're not, they are, they are, they are straight black, all black, murdered, murdered out. Oh my gosh. I don't even know what's worse. <laughs> nice. No, but you're right. I, it's, I do. I do like those. Yeah, they are pretty, they are pretty comfortable, man. It's like, I've worn them for, worn them for mm. years. I call them my old man shoes. Cause I just slip them on and slip them off. They're like slippers. But, uh, but you're right, man. It's like, cause it's funny. Like it, there would have been probably years past that, like I would have been in my truck and realized I forgot my boots and been like, either turned around and got my boots or just been like, screw it. I'm not hunting. You know what I mean? Like, and then I'll just, I'll admit that. Right. Cause it's just like, I'm very much a creature of habit. And if I don't have things kind of like in a structure and set up, it's like, I sometimes don't, um, I don't deal well with it. You know what I mean? Like it kind of throws me, throws me for a loop. It throws everything, everything else like out of whack. And, and so I was driving today and I recognized that I forgot them. And like, my first thought was like, man, I'm just going to turn around and get them. And I was like, well, if I turn around and get them, like I might as well just stay home because I'm not going to make it there in time to like have a meaningful hunt. And then I was just like, like, hey, look, it's 80 degrees. I was like, I don't need boots. You know, I was like, I just wear, I just wear these vans. I was like, and if it gets to a point that I got to cross water, I was like, I'll make the judgment calls to whether or not I'm going to cross or if it like, it gets really, really thick and briary and like, yeah. I'm just, and I can't make it through cause I need a pair of boots to kind of kick through the brush or whatever. I was like, then I'll make the call and maybe I'll just set up right there or whatever. I was like, but I'm just going to go in and see where I can get to, you know, wearing these and see, see how the hunt plays out, you know? And I'm glad that I did. And you're hundred percent right. I was way more quiet <laughs> with those shoes on than I ever am in any pair of boots that I have period. End of story. hundred percent. Well, are you familiar with the company, uh, Russell Moccasin company? I'm not. They're out of Wisconsin. They're a hundred year old company. They've been building custom moccasins and boots um, for like a, a literally a hundred years or more. It's an amazing uh, company. Um, I have a pair or I have multiple pairs of them, but I have a pair of their pull on boots. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, uh, you ever seen the um, Orvis Gokies, the pull on, like, um, pull-on boots that just have like a little zipper in the back uh yeah anyways yeah well russell makes 
uh, it's one called a Zephyr. And it's just a, you know, a thin layer of leather. It's got like a crepe sole. And that was basically my uniform <laughs> for the last 30 years. Nice. I wore them every day uh, to work. You know, I just pulled them on, zipped them up. They're incredible. They just break in. They're incredibly comfortable. And until, you know, the last, I don't know, four or five years when I really started having like back problems and things, mm-hmm. you know, from accidents and things like that, um, is I, you know, I had to start wearing something that had more support and things like that. But that is the boot that I wore every day. And I never, I would never take them off. Um, even to go hunting, it's just, you know, I'd, I'd hunt in them, they'd get wet, I'd spray them off. And then the next day I pull them on and go back to work, but they're soft, you know, soft sold at the bottom, super comfortable, easy to get on and off. Um, but durable, you know, you didn't, I didn't, I never got into the, you had to have these fancy boots to hunt, especially when it's warm. You know, if I'm wearing a, 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 any kind of substantial boot, it is only for number one, waterproof when it's cold. That's the only thing I need out of a boot is waterproof when it's cold. Other than that, I don't really care. Um, and I think we've talked before, I don't even wear insulated boots. Even when it's cold, I pull the, you know, the boot blankets over. Yep. Yeah. I started doing that last year and that was, that was really effective. Like I preferred, the that, game changer. Yeah, totally is. The other thing I started doing too, because I went non-insulated last year, and what I started doing, and this, and it fits the way I like to hunt because I like to move a lot, and so I would set up, and then if my feet started getting cold, I would sit until they got so cold that I couldn't take it anymore, and then that told me it was time to get down and move and find deer, and I would just get down and I would scout and go find the next setup, and that was how I, and that's how I hunted the the whole trip in Iowa. That was my, that was how I would decide when I was going to move was when my feet got cold. Well, the boot blankets over an insulated boot is going to outperform any type of built-in insulated boot you could buy. Yeah. Period. There's no comparison. Um, especially, you know, taking into account that the feet are not just completely saturated in sweat by the time you walk into a tree in an insulated boot. Yeah. So it's just, that was definitely a game changer. But yeah, I mean, that's a cool experience that you had today, though. I mean, yeah. You know, if you if you go hunt, you come out, and you're just kind of kicking yourself, and what you're considering not a good hunt, you're missing the boat because learning, you know, something super cool like that on just a simple lesson. I mean, it just keeps adding to that, you know, arsenal of of knowledge, and you know, yeah, that's that's the key to becoming super consistent. Yeah, yeah, because there's a couple things I learned today, like a couple takeaways, which was one, I learned how they were kind of moving in that bedding area, right? Two learned that there are um, a ton of white oaks in that general area because I saw some on Saturday and I saw some in this this particular spot. And so the deer are definitely staying in there longer versus headed out to crop fields. So that was like the other, you know, kind of, you know, learning learning lesson. Um, and then the third one was I finally figured out the access for this particular area of this piece that I want to hunt this particular deer on. You know, so it was those three things where I was like, you know, walking out going, you know what, had an opportunity at a deer, you know, got, you know, got busted on the ground, still learning the whole ground thing, you know? And so, but it was cool to have a close encounter on my second ground hunt, um, you know, and then learn those couple things about that area. I was like, man, this is a win all the way around. And I got to spend a couple hours in the, in the timber, man. And that, and that never sucks. I mean, I might've got malaria from all the, all the mosquito bites I got while I was out, but aside from the malaria, I did pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) But Man, so well, 
what's that malarious nothing anymore? Yeah, that's some lightweight stuff compared to the crap we're dealing with now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But man, I want to talk a little bit about you know, I, you know, I know, you know, you folks in the South um, had some really bad storms, you know, that, that that came through. Obviously, and I know you were you were helping some folks out today and talking to some folks that had it had it pretty bad. Um, but I wanted to ask you, man, you know, when it, when storms like that come through and you have the type of flooding that you know you guys are dealing with in in in, in the area where you live and you know, and further south, mm-hmm. whatever the case is, like, what does that do to the, to the deer? I mean, how is it in terms of like when they get displaced, do they come back to where they were previously when the water recedes or does it move them and kind of displace them for the season? Like, how do you go about hunting an area where you think maybe you knew what was going on? Then all of a sudden you've got this really extreme flooding and then it recedes and then deer season opens. It's like, do you hunt it like you hunted it before? Is it shot in the ass or like, what's, you know, how, how do you kind of deal with that? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> I, I think you hear me say a lot, especially when it comes to setting up bows and things like that. I, I say one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, that I, I kind of learned and started applying year, years ago is that when you start trying to apply a set of rules or a scenario or patterns you know quote patterns if you will to what whitetails do you're 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 totally pigeonholing yourself um when you when you start trying to figure out these these let's say tendencies or or certain traits or patterns of things that that these deer do in certain scenarios it's it's the kiss of death because you know guys can talk on the podcast all they want about you know what this deer is going to do and this scenario what they're going to do in this pattern this time of year you know yada 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 you know if they're going to flood they're going to move to this this type of property and then once it recedes they move to this type of property and stage there man i am i am one of the guys that i just kind of want to know i want to know where the big deer are living and make sure that i've got big deer in the area i'm hunting and i want to basically hunt them day by day to day mm-hmm. and figure it out and and so that's a long-winded way of answering your question. I've grown up hunting, you know, floodplain, you know, areas that flood um, for whitetails my entire life. One of my favorite places that I've hunted the longest um, is constantly, you never know how much water is going to be in there. And the 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. They are constantly doing something different, uh, for sure. Um, But I can tell you that, like, I remember coming home from coming home from Oklahoma one year and we were coming down, um, the, the, the west side of the Mississippi river. And, you know, there's levees, uh, on either side of the river, big, big, huge levees, you know, earthen dams that, that were built by the Corps of engineers years and years ago mm-hmm. to try to protect, you know, from flooding. And it was a, a major, you know, flood event. It was in November, right before Thanksgiving. And I remember coming home, through this horrible storm 
and water was everywhere. And I remember looking across these ag fields, you know, maybe, I don't know, three or 400 yards from the highway to the levee, because the road, as it runs between Mississippi and Louisiana, um, as you're, as you're coming down, headed towards maybe Vicksburg, um, you know, the levees are, and the road is right along the high, on the, along the river. And I remember looking across and the whole way down for, I don't know, 80, 90 miles, uh, until I hit the interstate, there were hundreds of deer stacked up just standing on top of this levee and nowhere else to go. Uh, I remember seeing just, you know, dozens of bucks in groups, uh, just standing there. It was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. Um, and I've, and I've watched deer under major flood events, deer that I know that are not old enough to know, you know, to have experienced a major flood event, mm -hmm. but I've watched them go to the, go to the same places every time. And I don't mm -hmm. know if it's just that they're, these deer are so familiar with their terrain and their surroundings and, you know, the area that they live, their, their home range that they know, you know, high ground, low ground, and they know the difference. Maybe, I, I don't know, but mm -hmm. That's one of the things that it's always puzzled me because I, I remember there were these mud mounds that these deer used to push up on uh, when the water would get real high, and it was just a slam dunk. I mean, you if you got in there a couple hours before dark, carried your climber in, waded in, you know, deep, deep by deep water, wade your way in, climb up, downwind that side of one of those mud mounds. When the sun came up, it looked like you know, ducks coming to you. You could just see the V in the wakes and the deer moving towards those mud mounds to get up out of the water and bed. Hmm. And it was like shooting fish in a barrel. And it, that worked for a while. And then they just, it's like they adapted, quit doing it. And they would just bed, you know, in a little bit shallower area, right in the water and the thick, in the thick stuff. And wouldn't come to the mud mounds anymore. And then they'd start doing it again. So it's it's never this this um, repetitive thing with whitetails. It's always like they're, like year to year, it's just this, I don't know, they're doing something different. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when people become more pliable and more adaptable to what's happening in their current, you know, current condition, their current time, when they're hunting, I think they're going to become a lot more successful because guys end up spending so much time hunting something that they've had success in their past or historical data, um, you know, in their mind that this is where they're going to be this time of year. And you end up wasting so much time until you figured out, hell, they're not doing that now. They're doing something different this year for whatever reason. Right. Um, I, I think that's a, a, an incredible key to success on, on big whitetails is just being extremely adaptable and, um, keep moving until you figure out what they're doing right now, you right. know? Yeah. Um, I, I've but, often kind of been a believer that a lot of times people's past success is the, is their kiss of death almost yeah. because they start to, they start to buy into the idea that that, that that approach is ironclad or it's something that they did is the reason why they had success. And if they can just repeat that, they'll repeat the success or, they go back to the same stand or, you know, tree location because they've had success there. And, and, you know, and, and it really what it was is it just was right choice, right decision at the right time, put them at the right, at the right spot, that, that one, in, that one instance. Um, 
it's one of the reasons why, you know, people, you know, I'll get questions like, why do you always hunt different pieces of public? Like you never seem to hunt the same public year over year. And because what, you know, what I found is, I'll go back to what I said earlier. It's like, I'm very regimented with things. Like if, if something goes awry, like with my prep, it kind of throws me for a little bit of loop, but it's, it's odd because when I actually get into the timber, I don't really have a, a method. It's really kind of like, it's just going off of what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling is how I set up and how yep. I move, and, and how I move. Um, and one of the reasons why I hunt different places year over year and try not to hunt the same general parcels, you know, if I can help it year over year is because I go in with a clean slate of not knowing where there was success previously. And it keeps me from being romanticizing a particular area or a particular setup or a particular access point or anything like that. It's like, there's no romantic value to any of it. It's all binary that it's either, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Or let me put it this way. I either think it's going to work or I don't think it's going to work. And I make my decision based off of that, that there's not a, well, it did this the last time. There is none of that because I don't have an experience there. So everything is brand new and I'm just using brand new information every hunt to make a decision to try to put myself in a position where I think I'll have success. And that's why I like it to me that, that, you know, that lack of information to me is actually very freeing. And I actually had, when I started hunting that way, I actually started enjoying the hunts more often. Cause what I tell people is like, I feel like I'm actually hunting then, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm actually going, I'm trying to find the deer and kill the deer. I'm not waiting for yep. it. I'm actively pursuing, you know, and to me that, like it, it allows me to be and start be feel and think more like a predator. And so then I can take more aggressive action and, and act, and in a weird way, I feel like I'm way more calculated when I do that too. So, well, it, you know, and that is a, <clears throat> that it, it kind of, that is a great segue into you asking about the New Mexico hunt. Um, you know, we were in there last year and got into an area that I'd hunted previously and it was just on fire. Um, it was some of the best elk hunting, you know, I had had in, in recent years for sure. Mm-hmm. It almost felt like the old days, you know, it's so good. Um, and so of course this year we went out there earlier based on, you know, a lot of different circumstances. I, I didn't really want to go the first part of the season, but I just didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew as I approached that, that 15th day that it was going to, get better and it just was going to get better and better every day. So we got out there on the fifth, um, immediately went into the area where we just had, you know, hunt, hunt, you know, hunt of a lifetime day after day last year. And they just weren't there. Hmm. I mean, that when I say they weren't there, they just were not there. And it was extremely dry. Um, you know, real dusty water was certainly going to be the key. Um, there's just, you know, if the elk were there, they had to be going to water. Um, and so finding the water that was still available was, was super important, which we did. But, um, again, it's just like big deer, you know, those elk are just not going to on public land. They're just not going to come walk, you know, sashaying up to a water hole at, you know, an hour before dark. Right. Um, if you catch one during there in the daylight, it's, it's kind of a fluke. Uh, I mean, it can happen, don't get me wrong, but the odds are not really in your favor. So once we keyed on that, you know, and, and saw that there were elk actively hitting these, 
very few water holes that were available. Um, you know, I had to start kind of dissecting the circumstances. I started having to figure out, okay, they're not where they were. There's only so many places they can be. They have to come to these few water sources. Some of them are completely fouled because some, you know, you go to some of the better water holes and some jack wagons would have a, you know, three tent camp with three pickups parked next to the water hole right. with their tents and camps, set up. you know, that's public land hunting. And, um, you know, as I've gotten older, I just, you know, I don't go scold people and anymore and right. call them on the car, but I just move on. It's not worth it, but you kind of want to, but, yeah. but anyway, you know, we spent the first five days of 10 days of hunting really just trying to crack the code. And it was funny because basically the, the, the main access road that runs North and South through the area that we hunted, you know, it has these, you know, big ridge tops or mountains, if you will, that run parallel to the road, you know, and they're, you know, a quarter mile left, quarter mile right of the road. It's like going right up an alley, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would continuously stop and glass, you know, at the tops of these, of these, you know, facing slopes that were facing towards the road on one side, because it was kind of a Northwest facing, um, you know, the ridge for three miles was Northwest facing basically on an average with lots of draws and things. So it's perfect kind of scenario where they want to be, but it's right by the road. And I was continuously stopping and glassing and, and, um, Zach, which by the way, I, Oh, you an incredible thanks for that. What, what a, what a, what a, what a stud that guy is and a ball to be around. But anyway, nice. you know, Zach and Jake that I was hunting with, they kept kind of like, I could tell they were like, man, why are you stopping and glassing right here off the road where everybody comes up and down? I just continuously was doing it. And I kept saying, there's nowhere else they can be. All of these elk in this unit have to be on this three mile run of Ridge, there's nowhere else they can be because they're going to the water in the dark. We're not seeing them in the day. We're blowing by this stuff every day. They have to be there. And so, um, I was a little incapacitated. I've had some incredible back issues last month and it just kind of escalated on that 24 hour drive out there, um, in the truck. And I was by myself. So I, you know, drove the whole way where I couldn't really spell myself and let somebody else do it. And so I just, man, I, I've experienced a lot of pain that I hadn't experienced before. And I was really just not as mobile as I could be. So I was spending a lot of time getting high, high up, you know, on peaks and stuff and glassing and then sending Jake and Zach off, you know, in directions, you know, to mm-hmm. try to, you know, intercept some elk that we were seeing. But on day five, we went up into this area and I said, man, they've just got to be here. They've got to be working off this ridge right off the road, this whole system of ridges. And sure enough, I mean, we weren't even halfway up this trail and this huge bull comes over the hill in front of us, <laughs> pushing this herd of cows. I mean, a big bull <laughs> screaming his head off. And we're like, okay, we're in them. And so the back half of the trip, we were in them, you know, we were, we were just, you know, cracking that code. But as we would get, you know, the mornings would kind of get up and we were getting close to them. They would just vanish. Literally, they just vanish. And they were just dipping over that ridge and laying above the main road that everybody was driving by every day. Mm-hmm. And this was multiple groups, not just one group of L. Wow. You know, it was multiple groups scattered up and down this 
the system of bridges for two or three miles. And uh, so finally I was like, man, you know, it's like what you're saying. You're, you're figuring out what's happening then um, at the time, at the moment, and you're dissecting the information you've got and you're trying to put a plan together. And I thought, hey, look, they have to be going to this particular water hole or this one. They've got to be going, you know, this way to get to it. There's no way based on where we've been, they're going any other direction. So the last day we got set up where we thought they were going to come in in the morning and man, we, we were in them. We had bull after bull, you know, getting close, getting close, but we, you know, we've got stick bows, so we're limited on our range. We had some really close encounters. I was kicking myself on some small bulls and and cows that I'd passed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, and so once the, you know, the bulls had gone off the bed, there were so many in there fighting and pushing each other out. You know, we knew at that point that, hey, we saw one bull going, you know, to the east. Well, there's no way he went any further than that draw. Because if he did, he would have had to walk out across the whole entire open meadow in, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. He's not going to do that. But he's there. Right. And he's going to be coming this way. And these other elk have to be right where, they th- where we think they are. And so that's where we set up that last day. And exactly, you know, it took us 10 days to get there, but it, it all came together and um, the bulls converged right where we were. And we got one in within 12 yards on Jake and um, the bull popped up in front of him. You know, he was shooting a stick bow and the bull was quartering to him. And, um, you know, he, he, he took the shot he thought he could make. And I would tell you 99 times out of 100, if Jake draws that bow, it's, there's usually going to be fried chicken on the other. I mean, he's, right. he's deaf with that thing. And, but he, you know, he, he got it right on the shoulder button. Like the, the, the three inch square, you don't want to shoot an elk. That's where he got him. And, right. you know, not even a mortal wound. And so, I mean, we put it all together. We just didn't close it. And, um, but I can tell you that, that spending that 10 days with him and, and Zach was probably, at all the years I've hunted, that's probably the best group experience I've had good hunting or bad. Right. Um, as far as like attitudes and enjoyment and being around people. So, you know, if you're going to be packing that big hairy mustache around with you filming this year, you're going to have a ball. (laughs) He is is the best man. Nice. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking for, I'm glad you guys got a chance to chance to connect. We've had a chance to talk a little bit, you know, a couple of times here and there, and he seems like a really good dude. I'm looking forward to spending some time with, with him here in, in, in November, man. I'm glad you got in, got into the, got into the elk though, man. It's like, and that's, that was the point I was kind of making, man. It was that it's that idea of hunting and just, and hunting and having to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like that to me is the, is the hunt, you know, that's the, you know, I was telling someone the one day I was like, we've got aisles in the front of our head. Like we're predators. That's what we are. Right. And like, and that to me, it's like when I started approaching hunting that way, it just became that much more enjoyable, you know, because I was truly hunting. I wasn't waiting for something to happen. It's I'm pushing the envelope and being aggressive and, um, giving the deer hell or elk or whatever it is I'm hunting. You know what I mean? That's just how I like to, how I like to do it now. But I want to, I want to transition back to, back to whitetails here really quick. Cause you know, mm-hmm. I, I know, I know that we talked in the past, you know, past two sessions you and I did together, you know, we talked a little bit about both setups and, and stuff like that. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just, you know, setting up a bow, you know, effectively, 
for for hunting whitetails, right? Like what you know what your approach is for that versus how you might do it any any other way. Because this year, you know, I did some I did some dialing of my bow, and then actually at the at the last moment, I actually ended up swapping bows um, and went with a completely different manufacturer. And since I did that, like I've been shooting lights out and, and just like, you, you know how, whenever you have a bow that you just can't ever seem to get to tune, like you just can't get it to have an arrow spin for you. And then when you finally kind of shoot a bow, whether it's the same one, whether you get it tuned you know, and it tunes for you or whether you change it up and you shoot a different bow and like, and all of a sudden now the arrow is coming out, like you want it to come out, how it just like, you have this feeling of relief and you're like, hell yes. That's what it's supposed to look like. When I put my pin there, that's where the arrow lands. You know, that's the experience yeah, I had. I, so I had that, that trying time this year of just kind of trying to get, you know, cause I was in that bad head space of like, when I was shooting, I, I was at the point where I, I wasn't sure if it was me or the bow, you know? And it was just, so that was part of the reason why I was just like, you know what, I'm going to go and kind of change things up. And if it's, if I'm still struggling then I know that's, that I'm having some issues, if it's not, then I've, then, then mm-hmm. I've solved the, solved the Rubik's cube. And part of it was just, you know, I was working with a, a rest that had broken. I had rebuilt it and stuff like that. And so part of it was just like some of my gear was, was failing on me, like on the bow, um, which was causing some of the issues. And so once I rectified that, it was spinning. But I want to hear from you, you know, because I know that you kind of have a way that you like to set things up for, for, hunt, for hunting whitetails specifically. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, so one thing I would say is, is that for anybody listening, <clears throat> Nine times out of ten, it is you. Oh yeah, yeah. 100%. Nine times out of ten, you can't shoot good enough to really make whatever flaws you have in your bow system really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what people need to work on more than anything is their form, the grip, the release. That's where it's at. Yeah, the grip, the release. That that's where bow hunting happens. That's where air flight comes from the tune of the bow, everything to set up, all that does is either magnify your flaws or it masks them. It'll mask your flaws Mm -hmm. depending on how well it's set up. So that's one thing that people really need to keep in mind. Very rarely is it the gear Mm -hmm. that's causing poor flight, poor, you know, poor shooting. Um, So, you know, chase, chase, you know, the, the, the best execution of the shot that you can make shoot the best that the bow you have can shoot and then make adjustments. Right. Most people will run straight to the shop or whatever and start thinking with their gear. But, um, and I'm just, I'm not being, you know, ugly about it. I'm just trying to give people reality and facts. It's, it's normally us. It's normally not. Oh yeah. You know, hundred percent. I mean, I know like even whenever I'm, you know, when I'm, you know, uh, tuning or whether I'm at the shop or wherever, you know, I have a little paper tuning set up here at the, here at the house. It's, you know, when I shoot a bullet hole, I might shoot a bullet hole one out of every four or five arrows that I put through paper, you know, and it's, and it's because those other four was just, I torqued my grip a little bit. My release wasn't right. Whatever the case, whatever the case was, you know what I mean? And so I 100%, I 100% believe that for sure. Well, it, it is, it's just fact. I mean, mm. you know, but anyway, 
when it comes to setting up a bow for a whitetail, and I, I don't, I don't, we're talking about compounds, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I'm setting a, a bow up for anything, I really don't very much other than maybe how many sight pins I have. Hmm. Um, other than that, the bow really doesn't get changed. But for argument's sake or for this, the sake of this discussion, we'll talk about setting up a whitetail bow. Okay. So I'm a firm believer in, um, you know, um, eliminating the need for the weakest link uh, in my system, which is my brain. <laughs> um, I want to eliminate the need to have to use that thing. Okay. Right. So, uh, so I, I you know, and I also want to eliminate uh, the, the chance that any equipment failure is going to happen, no matter how rare, how crazy, how low of a percentage, I want to eliminate anything that it has a percentage of failure. So the way I set a bow up for whitetails is, um, well, for any bow, I do not shoot drop away rests. Hmm. Um, I, I do not shoot. If I could weld everything to my bow and not have any moving parts, that's what I would do. No screws, no bolts, no nothing. Um, I want it simple. I want it quiet. I want it efficient and I want it fail safe. So I have shot a drop away rest once it failed. I threw it out in the woods and I went right back to a, a full capture rest, like a whisker biscuit. Mm-hmm. Now what those rests do again is they amplify your flaws. But if you will actually learn to shoot and learn to be extremely accurate with that, you're going to have perfect form and you're going to execute perfect shots in the field. Mm-hmm. The drop away rest is masking your flaws for you. So when that thing fails, you're screwed and they fail all the time. There's too many springs, moving parts, cords that can move up and down. It's just a recipe for failure. And in, and in whitetail hunting, my world ends at 30. Right. Um, if you're going to shoot at a whitetail past that, you're rolling the dice, Mm -hmm. um, especially pressured whitetails. Um, so I set up my bow as simple as it can possibly be. And I basically am I'm setting it up just like a a rifle would, um, for your, basically your max point blank range, Mm -hmm. which means the distance that you can hold a pin, uh, on a target based on whatever size that target is and hit the target where you want it. So for our argument, let's say that we're, talking about a five or six inch square is our target on a whitetail. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the center of the vitals. All right. Now our target is certainly bigger than that, but if you're striving to hit within that, you know, magic triangle where the lungs dump into the heart, you know, the, the arteries from the top of the lungs dump into the heart, you, you know, right. heavy vascular area in that thoracic cavity, you're talking about a, you know, five to six inch square. So what is my max point blank distance to stay on that target? And it's, you know, for me, it's 30 yards with my setup. And so what I do is I have a fixed pin, which I actually don't shoot a pin. I shoot a crosshair. 
um, because I want to see the entire target. I don't want the pin blocking. I want to see all the way around what my point of impact is going to be uh, and have as open, you know, as open field of vision as possible, especially in low light. It's so critical in low light to not have a pin block it out. Um, but I set up that crosshair to where my, you know, my zero is 25. Um, and at 15 yards, I'm three inches high. And at 30 yards, I'm three inches low. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's my six inch max point blank range, you know, my top to bottom of that kill zone. So, but everybody knows that, you know, depending on the, how far a a deer is away from you, especially let's talk about tree stand hunting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tree stand hunting, uh, you know, your point of impact is going to vary as far as the height of it, the high and the low based on how far away that deer is from the base of your tree. Right. So, right. you know, you're, you're looking at that animals cause you're wanting that arrow to go through and you want to pass through, you know, the greatest amount of, of vitals, uh, at however, whatever angle the, you know, the arrow is going to pass through. So for a close range shot, you know, you're going to want your impact point of impact a little higher, right? So you can get through more vitals. And then, of course, as the further you get out, the more you get to a perfectly broadside, you know, less of, a, of an angle, you know, you're going to want to have that thing a little bit lower because you're going to want to go through, say, the center of the lungs, top of the heart. You know, you're not want to come through it at an angle. So you don't want the same point of impact. But if you think about the way I set my bow up, if I aim at the same spot on a whitetail with my setup, let's say that I'm aiming, say, six, seven inches above the brisket, you know, not above brisket, above the belly, you know, at the top of basically the golden triangle, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What someone would consider the perfect impact point. Well, let's say that that's where I'm going to aim on, on a deer zero to 30, regardless of where he is. So let's say that the deer's 13, 14 yards below me, but I'm aiming at the same place every single time, regardless of where he is. My point of impact is going to be three inches higher than that point of aim, but it's exactly where I want it to hit. Mm-hmm. You want it to be a little higher close in. And then at 25, you know, you're going to want to be, you know, 20 to 25, it's within an inch. You're going to be want to be right on that perfect top of the golden triangle, basically. And you want to hit that deer perfect. So you hold right on. Now, if that deer is at 30, um, I'm a man of faith and I know from zero to 30 that if I hold on that same spot, when the arrow gets there, that deer in that spot is not going to be in the same spot. It's going to be dropping away. It's mm-hmm. going to be the bottoms falling out. Right. That deer is going to be dropping. It's, 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 it's not, not going to happen. So, but let's say that I shot at that deer at 30 and he did not move. I would hit him low or miss him under his brisket, something like that. Hit the bottom of the heart. Still going to most likely still going to kill him. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if if you hit him a little bit lower, but he is going to move, he is going to fall and gather himself and, and, you know, you know, build his legs to take off. And so what you'll find is, is that that same point of aim at 30, the arrow will nine times out of 10, not only will it not impact there, it'll actually be above it. 
because the deer will end up dropping, you know, five, six, eight, ten inches, depending on how keyed up they are and how, you know, if you grunt at them and they stop and look at you and you shoot at 30, you're going to be shooting well above that point, I think, because they're going to drop eight or ten inches before it gets there. So that's how I hunt. I, I have one, literally one point of aim. Basically, if you took a deer and, and let's say that you, you had that deer, um, let's say you had that deer and you painted a stripe around him all the way around him, or you, let's say you put him in a, in a tub of, of say blue dye. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you ra- and you raise that water up to that point of aim. And so you've got a, a basically a line all the way around him. Mm-hmm. You with me? Yep. Well, that is the elevation, regardless of whichever angle that deer is facing, quartering away, quartering to, broadside, whatever. That is the point of aim. That is the, the, the elevation on that deer that I'm going to aim around that thing 360. That's where the pin is going to be. You never change where your pin rests on that deer. And you get into such a you know repetitive nature, nature with it to where you don't really care as long as he's inside your wire he's inside that 30 that you've established and you know it before you, you, know, you get in your tree and you establish your 30 all the way around you. He's inside the wire. You hold in the same place, execute your shot. And it's a vital shot every single time. Right. You've just eliminated your need for a range finder. You've eliminated your need for multiple pins. You've eliminated your need for your brain, which that's what I'm trying to get out of the way all the time. It's how do I eliminate the need for my brain? And the other thing is, you don't have a site that could possibly be off. You don't have a, a movable site that you forgot you shot at 40 yesterday and left it. And you just shot over a deer at 20 yards. Right. You don't have a movable rest that's going to get a stick hung in it that you don't see, and it's not going to fall away. You don't, you don't have one that's going to have the, the rip cord get you know, dragged by something that you don't see when you're pulling your bow up, and it doesn't execute properly. And then your bow's deadly silent. Hmm. nothing's moving, nothing's rattling, nothing's changing, no springs, no pulleys, no nothing. Hmm. It's just quiet execution, you know? Right. And that's, you know, that's the key for me, you know? Right. I, I said the up, industry has told us other things. Right. Right. I set up similarly, but like the one part that I haven't done yet, um, is I don't think my window is as tight as yours is. What's your like? What I guess. Let me ask what what your draw length and in, in in pounds are. If you're, I know you shoot stick bow, but if you're shooting, yeah, I comp- shoot. Well, I said I shoot a compound a lot still. Do you? Um, okay. So, oh yeah, I do, I do because in the last three or four years, I've really gotten back into the compound shooting a lot because for me it's a responsibility that I've taken on with this company to help guys become more efficient. Right. And if I'm not using the gear they're using, you know, I'm, I'm out of the loop. I can't relate. Right. And I think that's unfair. I mean, I think it would be disingenuous for me to say, Hey, I know what I'm talking about. You know, call me and I'll help you get what you need. And then they call and I'm like, Oh, I, you know, I shoot a stick bow. I don't, I don't know anything about those, you know, those things. So I've gotten back into shooting a compound, and I've shot just about every one of them out there. Um, and there's, there is not a lot of difference in performance with regards to speed and all that. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference with regards to noise and vibration. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for that extra five feet per second. I could care less. I want that deadly quiet, no vibration, dead in the hand. 
easy to tune, easy system bow. Um, the extra five feet per second doesn't matter if it's loud and you can't keep it tuned. Right. So, um, so I'm shooting, you know, a 28 and a half inch draw and I shoot 70 pounds and I shoot a 550 grain arrow okay. uh, out of a compound. Okay. So, and you know, my, basically my, you know, that max point blank range, I have a, you know, a, a high and low Delta six inches. Right. You know, that's the total spread, zero to 30. I don't know that yours would be much different than that, but if it is, let's just say for argument's sake that it would be nine inches, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, now you're talking about four and a half high at 15 and four and a half low at 30. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm, honestly, I'm pretty close I mean, to that. Because what I'm using right now is I set it, I have it set at this it's 29 uh 29 yard single pin i have it i leave it set at 29 yards and yep and i know there basically i know at 30 it's like i'm pretty i'm pretty dead on at 30 like if i hold the pin where i want it that's that's where it lands and i know as i get closer you know if i'm up around like 20 yards i do start to shoot probably a good four inches high right and there's this weird like yeah there's this weird area that I hit 15 yards and from 15 yards and in, it's the same as holding it at 30. There's just like, there's, there's this movement from 30 incrementally up to 15 where it will, I'll be shooting high. But once I hit that 15 yard mark, it lands the same spot as my 30 yard, as my 30 yard mark. And so I'm doing something. Well, what it is, is, you know, it's, it's, well, no, you know, it's, it's leaving your bow. You haven't, yeah. Your arrow is still coming through to, well, yeah, it hasn't yeah. passed your sight plane yet. Yeah. So it's just like a rifle. I mean, it's, you know, you can basically take a rifle that would be, say, a zero at 250. That would be six inches low at, um, you know, it'd be six inches low at, at 300. If you've got a like a, a rifle that's got that ballistic, mm-hmm. you basically can guarantee that that somewhere between 40 and 50 yards, it's zeroed again. Because right. the bullet's passing the, the line of sight, and that's the same thing that's happening with your bow. So, you know, for me, instead of having and – and I used to do that. I used to have my bow sighted in dead on at 30, so I could have – you know, that's what I wanted, and I would be a little bit higher in that mid-range. Mm-hmm. But when I shoot 90% of my deer between 20 and 25 yards, that's where I want it to be, you know, dead on. And the other thing is, is that as I've – shot a lot of whitetails over the years and realized that they're not like you know um uh they're not like the cartoons you know they don't jump up on their toes and go up in the air when you shoot at them whitetails use gravity (laughs) right to get away they go down they gather their leg muscles and they fall away and back that's what they do and, you know, it's funny because one of the things that was really interesting to learn, which I actually learned this in Africa and then came back and applied it to other species that I hunted, is that some species have a tendency to gather themselves and push forward. Hmm. So uh, hogs will do that a lot. Hogs will gather themselves and push forward, but they're not consistent. Um but very rarely do you see a deer, a whitetail, gather himself and lunge forward. It's always down, back, and away. Right. You know, they're they're like they're like feigning a, a, a you know a right hand cross. Right. Um, 
a mule deer has an incredible tendency to gather and push forward. An antelope gathers, you know, a pronghorn gathers and push forward. So as you learn what these different species do, um, which we're getting off tar- topic, I guess, because we're talking about whitetails, but, you know, as you learn what they do, you know that, hey, if I'm antelope hunting, I'm not going to shade back from that crease on the shoulder as much as I would, like, say, on a whitetail, because he's not going to fall down and away and bring his vitals into that air path of that arrow. He's going to push forward, and he's going to bring those guts into it. So I want to hold more on that leg on mule deer and, and um, antelope and, you know, hogs and things like that. And then on whitetails, I want to shade a little bit further back because they're going to drop, gather, they're going to be falling away from you and spinning away. So they're going to be spinning their head towards their tail. Um, and that's just how they, you know, how they react the, you know, high percentage of the time. Right. So if you've got your setup set up to where you're, you're gambling, but you're betting, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, that deer is going to be dropped at least three or four inches at 30 yards before your arrow gets there. Mm-hmm. Well, why wouldn't you have your point of impact three or four inches below what your pin is? Right. So you're hitting them right where you want them every single time. It is. It has become an absolute fail-safe mm-hmm. system for me. And and now you're not. That's another calculation in your head that you're not having to go through. How far is he? That calculation's out. Right. Number two, where should I hold? That calculation's out. There's no more. There's no more figuring anymore. Right. You just draw hold on that same, you know, tape line on him all the way around him, wherever, whichever way he's facing, you draw, hold it on him, you know, he's in the wire and you kill him. There's no brain power involved. Um, yeah, I think that's probably why I like the trad bow so much. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's like you're making but, me, you're making um, me think about it because that was the one thing I was trying to like work to eliminate. Because last year, the way I was set up, like I was having to do some, I was having to do some thinking. Um, and the reason I ended up moving my pin to 29 because I was like, man. At twenty, at twenty nine, I was like, at thirty, I hold right on. I was like, and anything in from twenty nine to fifteen, I hold at heart level, you know, bottom of the heart, and let it rip, and I'm good. And then beyond that, I other than that, I hold it dead on where I want it. You know what I mean? Like that was. So I tried to eliminate part of like, am I holding off? Am I holding low? So now it's just like, I either hold on or I'm holding low. Like there's only two options. Yeah, but but, but you I think like about the it, idea. I was just going. Yeah, I was just going to say spot. I like the idea of like letting him fall into it and knowing that I'm going to always hold it at the same in the same place. Like that's just it. well, you think about this. You know, hunting hunting rutting whitetails. If you're in the peak of the rut and they're pushing, you know, pushing does hard. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the buck coming on a doe. You can hear that cadence of that. You know that that. uh like a Tennessee Tennessee Walker horse, you can yeah. hear it when they start doing that high step, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, okay, he's he's on a doe, they're coming. I can't tell you how many times I've drawn my bow, and he's popped out at say thirty, and as soon as he pops out, I'm like, okay, he's in the wire, and they're coming, 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 coming. He stops for a half a second at ten yards, and the arrow's off and through him. You know, I don't have to go through the process of where do I need to hold? Okay, he's coming, he's coming. Where do I need to hold? He's getting closer. How far? Is, you know, I don't have to go through any of that shit. Hmm. I hold them the same place regardless of where they are. 
and here's the other thing. If you're dead on at 30 and you hold where you want to hit him at 30 and he's keyed up, mm-hmm. you're going to hit that here deer high. Yeah. I'm telling you, you're going to hit that deer high and you're going to lose him. And I promise you that out of all the deer I've tracked in 30 something years of doing this, the majority, like high, high percentage of whitetails or any animal that gets away is the result of a high hit. Right. It's not guts, it's not low, not forward, not anything. It's high. Right. The high hits is what lets them get away. And, um, and so you just want to eliminate that. You want to eliminate that out of the whole, you know, the whole thing. I, I remember when, when some really popular podcast guys came down to Alabama for the first time in February to hunt with me. And they were so, so fired up to be hunting whitetails for the first time or one of them was hunting for the first time, hmm. but they had not, you know, spent a lot of time hunting, uh, whitetails and they shot a bunch of deer in a week. And the, you know, if they killed six deer that week, they spined four of them. Hmm. And these guys are shooters. I mean, they can shoot. Right. And once you get past that 20, 25 yard mark, you're shooting at a moving target. Yeah. You're shooting at a falling away target. The bottom's falling out of it. And, I kept trying to tell them they were taking 30 yard shots. I'm like, look guys, you've got a 30 yard pin. They'd say, yes. I say, okay, well put your 30 yard pin on their, on their belly. Like put it on their white hairline at the bottom. Do not hold on that deer, hold off that deer. That's the only way you're going to kill it. They would not do it. And they kept shooting over, 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 Hmm. over, or they'd spine them. And, uh, finally, you know, they got to where they were doing it and they became efficient and, um, and then they can do it at 20 and 25. They can, you know, drop six, eight inches on you. Right. So having that single point of impact, that single point of aim, it basically takes all of that into account as well. So you don't have to think about, gosh, how much was this you're going to drop? You don't have to think about any of that stuff. It's one point of aim and it, all of that is taken into cal- into, you know, into the, you know, the, the calculation on it. And it's just, Draw, aim, shoot, regardless of where he is. Right. Um, for the Midwestern guys that are hunting, you know, big open country whitetails, those deer are not quite as smart as some of the more eastern whitetails. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't react as violently. It's like the further east you get, the vi- more violent they react. <laughs> and the further south you get, yeah. the more violent they react even more. Yeah. Well, as you get into like, you know, Kansas, Oklahoma, Iowa, that kind of stuff, Missouri, you know, some of those places, you know, those deer, they're big, big body deer. They don't react quite as fast. They're not as sketchy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't have to allow for that much of a, of a drop. And, you know, I would say I would feel comfortable you know, on a Midwest whitetail taking a 40 yard shot. Um, when I say Midwest, as you're shading more Western, you know, Kansas type, more open country deer, they're just not as, as wary. And I mean, don't get me wrong. They're still whitetails. They're still hard to kill, but they're not reacting as violently, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So ethically I would feel okay taking a 40 yard shot on a completely unaware whitetail buck. I, I would, you know, if he saw me and was on red alert and at 40, I would take that 40 yard shot possibly, 
but I, that 40 yard pin would literally be on his belly hair. Right. It would be behind his leg on the white, the white, the bottom of his chest. It would basically be off the deer. Yeah. Um, and, and literally that's just, that's how I hunt them. I mean, I'm, I'm planning on them to fall. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to go, I'm, I'm going to do a little tinkering, man, because I, I had a similar setup last year. Um, and then I, I, I switched it up a little bit, but I think I'm going to maybe have to make some, make some quick adjustments. Um, cause that's the only thing that really, that, 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 you know, I, I don't want to go as far as to say that, con- that concerns me, but that's the only part of like my sequence that I've not been able to kind of really feel a hundred percent. Like I've, like I've, like I've figured it out, like everything else I feel good about right now. Like my, like I'm, I've been shooting really well. Um, you know, the past several, several weeks, my release feels really good. You know what I mean? Like everything's breaking the way it should. And my arrows are landing where I want them to air to land. My broadheads tuned up, you know, no problem. Like they landed right with my field points, you know, so I had no issues there. The only thing that still, I have that thinking piece of being in the timber and still a little bit of that, you know, am I holding low or am I holding right on? You know, that's the, and yeah. I, I'd love to re- be able to remove that. So I might have to play around with my yardages a little bit and figure out where that, you know, where that three inch drop is at 30 yards ish, three to four inch drop yeah. is at 30 yards. And, and, and I'll tell you, that is a great point that you bring up. I'm glad you said that. Um, three inch drop at 30 is what I consider the max acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the, you know, based on what I've played with. I think that's the perfect amount of drop for 30 to be super safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what I would do is basically just keep moving your zero in and it may be 26 yards. It may be 24 yards, depending on your bow and your setup, mm-hmm. but basically move it in to where, you know, um, you just basically take your pin, hold it on 30, adjust it until you're three inches low and then just walk up until you figure out where your point on is. And regardless of whatever it is, the, the, the numerical distance doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's 27 or 22, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You're basically, you know, established a max point blank range that zero to 30, you're within that six inch vital corridor or that, you know, part that you want to hit on a deer. Okay. And you're also allowing for fall. I mean, it is a foolproof system. Yeah, and I think that you'll see some of the old, older, older time guys, the guys that have been around a long time, that kill a lot of big deer consistently. Their bows are so simple. Yeah, they're just so simple. There's no moving parts. There's no fancy stuff. Most of them, I promise you, are shooting one pin. Right. Um, especially the old badass public land guys. I mean, that's just what they're doing. And and as far as the rest goes, I'll make a I'll make a little point uh, for you to think about. I don't know if people know this or not, but, you know, when you see the greatest shooters in the world, you know, shooting on these stages or at these 3D shoots, the Levi Morgans, the Dan McCarthy's, and you know, all these great shooters, I don't know if people realize this or not, but they're not shooting drop-away rests. Hmm. And I think everybody's assuming that they are. They're not shooting drop-away rests. They're shooting a fixed basically lizard tongue launcher it is it it is a flexible tongue that holds the arrow and it does not move and it does not fall away there's no moving parts it literally 
they move it left or right, they twist it up or down, they torque it down, and the damn thing doesn't move. Hmm. Now, most people think that they're shooting drop-away rest. They're not. So my question is, when you've got the greatest shooters in the world shooting on the biggest stage for the biggest bucks, the biggest money, okay, mm-hmm. they are eliminating a percentage of failure. They're not taking a chance that that drop away rest is not going to work. Right. And why wouldn't you take that same philosophy and apply it to your hunting? Especially when you only get two or three opportunities a year. Yeah. And you're going to risk one of them to something stupid happening and not working in your bows more and in your bows quiet. Yeah. So you, you probably didn't realize that, did you? You probably thought they were all shooting drop away rest. Yeah, I thought they were shooting drop away rest, man. But I'll tell you what, you twisted up no. my, you twisted up my brain with all this right now because I'm now thinking about. It. I'm like, man, now what the, what what do I need to change on my bow now? I was like, because now I'm <laughs> trying to think you about know, what you know I can our buddy eliminate. Kevin, yeah, this uh, Kevin Vissison. Yeah, I love that guy. He's he is hysterical. Um, you know, he was having problems uh, tuning his. Uh, one of his new primes that he had last year. Mm-hmm. And I'd been telling him, take that drop away rest off. You're getting contact, you know, back and forth. Right. Put a whisker biscuit on it. He's like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. You know. So he called me on his way home from the prime factory because he lives, I guess, not far from there. Yeah. Yeah. He lives right around the corner from there. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, hey, yeah, man, bring your bow in. We'll help you. And so he calls me and he goes, USOV. He said, you are going to love this. He said, I got there, told them what was happening, what was going on. And they're like, oh, yeah, no problem. They grabbed the bow, throw it up on the vise. The first thing they did was take my drop-away rest on and bolt a damn whisker biscuit on it. <laughs> and then they started tuning my bow. Uh, and I said, that's right, because they eliminated the chance of failure and variable from that drop-away rest. They eliminated yep. what could be erratic contact from shot to shot to shot based on spring tension or bounce back or all the other BS that goes on with these things. Right. They eliminated that out of the system and they went just to the bow and what the bow can do. And he said, it just makes total sense now. Yeah. So, and hell man, we're not shooting at 80 yards. Yeah, exactly. I know. know? Cause now I'm thinking, I'm like, man, I got a whisker biscuit in my basement. That's like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then I should just Bolt go throw, own, brother. throw it on my throw it on my bow and get rid of my fancy drop away. But well, it's 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 no one's fault. That you know, it's no one's fault. I mean, it is what the hunting industry has told us that we need. Right. It is it is this, you know, overcomplication uh of technology and over application of unneeded, unwanted, undesirable technology that these companies have told us, this is what you need to be successful. This is what you need to kill big deer. And it's just not true. You know, they've told us you need light arrows. They've told us you need expandable broadheads. They've told just told us that you need a drop away rest. And these, you know, eight pin sites with floaters and all this other jazz. What they're doing is they're selling things, to create shortcuts for you to not put in the work to become a good shooter. Yeah. Cause a drop away rest is a mask for your flaws. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's all, I mean, no one invented the expandable broadhead to get a bigger hole. 
they originally you know invented the expanded broadhead because people couldn't shoot their bows and get their broadheads to group. Right. Yeah. That's the only reason they came was for accuracy. It wasn't for performance. Right. Um, so instead of the industry investing the time and money into educating guys on how to tune their own bow, you know, uh, how to become better shooters, they just throw gadgets at it. Yeah. And the gadgets are the fastest road to failure because they're shortcuts. And anything you do in life that you're using shortcuts to achieve, it's not going to sustain. Yeah. You've got to have a foundation. That foundation is simplicity and you doing your job and right. becoming a good shooter. Right. Man, you always, you, always bring the, you always bring the goods, man. But speaking of building a foundation, speaking of shit that works, products that work, if you wouldn't mind tell folks where they can find out more about day six and what you got going on and where they can get gear. That's just going to work and, uh, and, and, and no frills. Well, it's uh, day six gear, um, dot com. And then we're on social media, day six gear where we're on Instagram. We're not on anything else really, but, uh, the easiest way to get help is just pick up the phone and, and call our number and I answer it. Um, so I am the, you know, customer service guy. I am the, tech guy uh i'm head custodian everything <laughs> so I've got, I've got guys that help me and work with me but i i answer the phone and and i handle you know the problems or issues and you know i love helping guys figure out their setups i love helping them dissect what their you know problems could be and work through it and figure out how to get them shooting efficiently quickly um whether that means buying our products or not, it's not about that, you know, for us, it's, you know, we just want to make guys more efficient and start bringing people back to what bow hunting really is supposed to be. It was supposed to be a close range, um, you know, a close range, uh, game, you know, in a, in a, in a challenge with, with, you know, your quarry, your animals or whatever. It, it, it was never meant to be this long range thing that it's become. Right. And all of this gadgets and stuff, that's all it's done. It's just, you know, it's, it's to, you know, help people do things that really bow hunting was never meant to be. So, yeah. you know, pick up the phone, call us and, you know, I'll, I'll help, you know, figure out what you need and how to get there. And I'll always be honest with you. And if our stuff's not going to work, I'll be honest with you and tell you, you know, you, you got more problems than what I can fix. And here's, you know, here's what you need to do. That's a hard conversation for me to have. Right. You know, I, when I start talking to a guy and I realize number one, he's got a lot of shooting problems or number two, his bow is jacked right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. and I can't help him over the phone. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. So, yeah, well, I can, um, I can attest to, you know, your, your willingness to help folks. I actually had a, a fellow who listens to the show and had, you know, knew that I was, you know, shoot day six broadheads and arrows. And, um, he actually messaged me and said, Hey, you know, what do you think of these? You know, I'm having some trouble with X, Y, I forget exactly what he was having trouble with. I think he may have been having some trouble, you know, t getting his bow to tune and with the arrows he was using and, and broadheads, he wasn't sure if he was spun sure. right, I think was part of the problem. And I said, yeah, I was like, you know, just, um, I was like, go to, go to your website, you know, go, go to day six website. And I was like, and, um, you know, I was like, and just, you know, either contact them on the, on the phone number there. I was like, or message them on social media. I was like, chances are you'll get, you'll get Brian. And I was like, and he'll hook you up, you know, he'll, he'll get you straightened out. 
And literally he texted me or he messaged me the next day and just, you know, th- to say thank you or whatever. And he was like, Hey, he's like, yeah, you know, Brian called me right back. He's like, he talked. So whenever Brian says he's literally the the tech guy, the custodian guy, like he is the guy and he will make sure you get, you get, you get fixed up. And that's coming from someone who listens to this show and that had an interaction with, with Brian in day six and came back, came by or, you know, came away with, with a great experience. So, you know, kudos to you guys. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, man. Kudos to the way you, the way you do things. I always love having you on. I love just talking to you when we get a chance to talk even offline, um, personally yeah. or whatever, you know, you're good people. And, uh, I'm glad you make a, a killer product and I'm glad you, uh, um, you're always here to help set us all straight, brother. I appreciate you. Well, I got one more tech tip for you personally, and then we'll sign off here. Okay. Um, if you're going to do a, a a road trip with Zach over your shoulder, yeah. Uh, he did not change his underwear for ten days, <laughs> so you might need to make sure that he brings an extra set, and yeah. you have a at least a five day mid trip <laughs> mandate that he does a wash down and change it. Right. He's a big hairy animal. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the heads up on that. I'm actually going to text them right after this and be like, Hey homie, I'm, I'm going to send you some underwear. I expect you to bring them along. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's awesome. All right, man. Well, Hey, right, I appreciate thanks, you man. coming on brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd do those few things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tether, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Blue Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.